I'm going to start reading in Titus chapter 3, verse 2 in our Navigate series. And today I would just like to give you the precursor, a lot of uh, preliminaries here. Uh, this will be longer than normal, and the nature of it uh, warrants that, sort of demands that. Next week we'll be back to a normal length sermon, so just to give you a heads up on that. Uh, if you're here, you're not at the football game, so God bless you. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Uh, also, there's several books I would suggest. I'm just going to tell you in the front end. Uh, there's one book called Is God Anti-Gay? Very strongly suggest that. There's a book called Divine Sex. Another one called The Great Sex Rescue. I would suggest those to any of you. Um, I'm indebted today to Sam Alberry, Preston Sprinkle, John Tyson, uh, Tim Keller, uh, Sheila Gregory. So I'm indebted to multiple people that are going to go into the last couple of weeks. But Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 2, says, Slander no one, be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle to everyone. We're going to talk about navigating LGBTQ today. Let's pray. God help. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. I've had so many conversations with people that have gone something like this. I like you, you like me, we're enjoying each other's conversation, whatever. They find out what I am or what I do or where I go to church or they find something out that lets them know I'm a Christian and I have often evaded, especially when they ask what I do for a living, I, Certainly don't tell people I'm a pastor if I want to get closer to someone. Usually their arms cross and their, their eyebrows frown and, and there's a defensive posture as they brace themselves, understandably. And the number of people I've talked to that have said whether it's them that were same-sex attracted or their child that has recently come out or their uncle or their father or their mother or their grandmother or somebody that they love that is gay, they would want to know immediately my position on homosexuality, on all things LGBTQ. How many genders do you think there are? What's your position on gay marriage? Why is the church as hateful as, as they are? I've talked to people that have said things like, Mike, if you're going to tell me that you think I'm gay because maybe something happened to be traumatic when I was a kid, okay, for example, yes, that did happen. There were things that happened to me, and yes, here I am, I'm, I'm gay. Uh, I was molested from the time I was five to the time I was 12, and is it possible that contributed toward my sexual orientation now? Possibly, but I need you to know two things. Number one, I know plenty of people that, that had nothing traumatic happen to them, and, th and they are gay, they are bisexual. And furthermore, if God forbids someone to feel the way that I feel, I have a problem with a God who would allow something like that to happen to me for all those years. And then for him to forbid me to have these feelings, I got a problem with a God that lets those things happen to innocent kids. The stakes are pretty high on this conversation. I, I need us all to get in a spot where we can just be honest about the difficulty that that a boy or a girl feels when they're, they're living in the world that 
we live in and their friends start to have certain feelings that they don't and their friends start to experience things that they're not and, and, and they're wrestling through it. And, and maybe, as some have told me, Mike, I tried. Like, I really did. I, I tried dating someone of the opposite gender. I tried writing little notes with little check boxes. Do you like me? I like you. Will you go out with me? You check yes or no. I, I tried some of these routes and... and it just never came. And I don't remember how old I was. It might have been when I was 12, might have been when I was nine, might have been when I was 15, 17. I, and, and the question was, I wonder if I'm gay. I wonder if, if I'm not like most of my other friends. And especially if you're older, if someone's in Gen Z, this is a little bit less. I mean, right now, 14% of all characters on, on television shows, everything being produced now, it's a, it's a much higher percentage that are LGBTQ. But if someone was millennial, and older, millennial, Gen X, um, boomers, any, any of the higher generations, it would have been incredibly difficult and painful to come out and to, and to share with someone the reality about what might be going on on the inside. And then to go into church circles, maybe to turn on Christian television and to hear, frankly, hateful tone behind words that are said or to talk to Christians that, that maybe make jokes or mock or shame and God's kingdom just has no shame in it. So we're talking about navigating this. I, I Very transparently, I want you to know, I really seriously said, let's not do this on a Sunday morning. Let's do this on another time. I'd pick another time to talk about this. I, this was not my first choice. I, I tried to even bring in a couple of other people. It does not escape me. Like I'm very aware of the fact that I'm a white, straight, married man, which in many people's eyes, you you know, I think understandably could say, hey, I think you're the least qualified person. I'm just letting you know, I seriously did try to bring in a same-sex attracted Asian man. That didn't work out. I really wanted to try to get a hold of Jackie Hill Perry, who, you know, who's a black, you know, woman that has, that, that has you know, experiences same-sex attraction. I seriously looked at having other people come in, and uh, I also know that we're living in Gainesville. I am in Gainesville. We're at a church where there is a lot of Gen Z in our church. There's a truckload of college students in our church. Some of you are watching this right now. You're watching me on video right here, and uh, I'll also let you know I've been wrestling with this for, for about the better part of 10 years. It's, it's, this sermon is going to take a little while because I've been writing this sermon for 10 years, so it's going to it's going to be a little, it's going to take a little bit more. I've been wrestling with this. The stakes are so high and the pain is so acute and the struggles are so real. I, I literally probably on an annual basis have come back to the scriptures probably every 10 or 12 months and said, God, do we have this right? Are we getting this right? Are we reading the Bible right? Are we, are we being fair to people? Are we, are we picking out some struggles and making them different than other struggles? And are we, are we being faithful to, to who you are and what your nature is and, and what you're like? And it, it, has that happened? Like, are, are, we, are we doing this right? Do we have this right? There's so many voices and I have literally the last few weeks just begged God, Lord, give me, let me have your thoughts. I do not pretend to think that I've got the monopoly on God's thoughts. I do not pretend to think that I can present you an impeccable and infallible uh, statement. And, and everything I'm going to even bring you today, I want to let you know I'm coming with a lot of fear and trembling. There's, there, there's, there, there's the recognition that I'm subjective and we're subjective and I'm living in a culture and I've been influenced by the culture I'm in, the family I was raised in, the churches I've been a part of, all this. This is the only church I've been a part of, but I'm an I'm I'm effect of all of these things. And yet I'm going to try my hardest. 
I do not want the evangelical position. I do not want the conservative position. I do not want the progressive position. God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. We have put way too much confidence in our own thinking when God says, my thoughts are not yours. So as much as possible, I just want to renounce human thinking right now and say, God, we beg you for your mind and your heart and your thoughts in Jesus' name. How do, we, how do we navigate LGBTQ? Mike, am I welcome at this church if I end up disagreeing with you on this? Yes. Mike, what if, are there some parts of this, this issue that are, that are unclear? Yes, there are. Are there some things that are crystal clear? I think that there are. Are there some things that we need to make clearer? Yes, that's why there's even a movement called the Clarity Movement, which says to churches, hey, you all owe it to the LGBT community to be very clear. It's called the Clarity Movement. Church clarity. Be clear. Don't bait and switch people and act like they're, they're gonna you know, hear one thing and then you switch out and you do something. So part of what I'm doing right now is letting you know I'm very aware of the fact that there's a call for clarity. There's also a call in our culture right now that if you disagree with anyone, you will be crucified, not for meanness. You'll be crucified for disagreement right now. It's a dangerous moment that we're in. So how do we navigate LGBTQ? Number one, get honest about where we are and how we got here. That's, that's the starting place I'm going to go. Be honest about where we are and how we got here. John Perkins, my hero, he says that this is the generation, our generation is the first generation that has made hate an asset. I do need us to know that where we are right now is that hate has become an asset. We no longer can simply disagree. When someone disagrees with me, it has no longer just been seen as disagreement. It has become hate. I I need you all to understand. I take a sky-high view of this book, and and I want you guys to understand that I believe that this book is absolutely our rule for all faith and conduct and belief and all of that. And if someone out here says, Mike, I disagree with you, I just want you to know, I don't think you're hateful because you disagree with me. You just disagree. And I love you anyway. I do. And you know what? And we can be disagreeable. And we can, we, can, we can be agreeable while we disagree. I need us to start recognizing if someone says something that you don't believe, that is not hate speech. It's a disagreement. There's some things that are obvious. The Gators are better than the Seminoles. It's an obvious statement, Right? There will be very little relieving of tension. I just gave you my one. That's the one. <laughs> but how did we get here? I mean, so, I, so just so you know, your pastor doesn't just read the Bible. Like my little side thing is I, like I read the Udney Reader and I read Advocate and I read Mother Jane and I read things that have made it very clear. Like if, you're, if you read any of the, the periodicals from right now that, are, that would lean... Uh, very much left on any of these issues. The, the statement could be, you, that sums up where we are is we are at war. That's the statement right now. The sexual revolution, of course, I started talking about it last week, was the destigmatization of non-marital sex. The homosexual revolution was the result of very disenfranchised, very abused, very shamed, very mocked, very beaten, very oppressed groups of people in the LGBTQ community that almost as a response in, as rational self-interest to their very survival, the LGBTQ community responded to the hatred and the beatings and the death toll and the, the, the getting fired from jobs. In 1971, there was 
Uh, the Gay Manifesto was written. Carl Whitman said San Francisco, as many of you know, became sort of the hub there, is the refugee camp for homosexuals. We have fled here, he said, from every part of the nation, and like refugees everywhere, we came not because it's so great in San Francisco, but because it's so bad everywhere else. You wake up not knowing if you're, you're going to get beaten up that day when kids would go to school not knowing what would happen to them. Hate crime, shaming, fired from jobs, threats, cultural pushback. The homosexual revolution, the homosexual agenda when people say that. Just to be clear, the homosexual agenda was a clearly articulated agenda that was birthed primarily through the lens of justice for people that had been very abused and beaten down. By the 1980s, and this is when I, as a kid, I can remember being alive as, a, I remember when, when the AIDS epidemic devastated America, especially the LGBTQ community. It brought confusion and pain, and the gay community had to shift from really being about the, pushing the agenda forward, about destigmatization and more, and, and normalizing same-sex attractions to, and relationships, to really becoming just an issue of survival. The 1980s were a time when there were so many people just dying. And much to the surprise of many people, the people that some would have thought would be the authors of compassion, namely the people that claim to follow Jesus, the friend of sinners, instead of being a place of safety, and consolation, and comforting, and help, and healing, a lot of the Christians that lean far right, instead of being that place of kindness and gentleness and a soft answer, became the loudest voices of rage, anger, condemnation, and literally kicking people while they were down dying, shaming them. And, and it really, I, I just, I need you to understand how we got where we are right now, because at a moment when I think the church had a chance to, among all the people on the earth, to show we are those, like Mother Teresa, like Mother Teresa, she built a house, it was called the House of the Dying. She would go and pick up the wounded people that were dying of tuberculosis and AIDS and all these diseases, and they were dying in the streets, she would go and pick them up and bring them into her house and kiss them and love them and, 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 and brush their hair and, and just, just watch over them. And people would say, you know, what are you doing? She's like, don't you recognize them? And, and, and they would say, no, we don't. And she's like, wait, how do you not recognize who this is? You, know, you don't see who that's, and they're like, yeah, that's a, that, that's a person from another religion or another sexual orientation just cowered over dying with a disease that they deserve. She said, I need you to look again. That's Jesus. Interesting, in the house of the dying, I've heard people say that when they worked there, that for periods of time, 100% of the people that landed in her house of the dying would turn their faith over to Jesus. Is it possible that we need to remember again that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? Every time someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. But how do people turn to the Lord? It's the goodness and kindness of God that leads people to repentance. It's not a compelling argument. I am not deluding myself to think that today if I give you some, some well-thought-out logic and reason of, of humanity, that somehow someone's heart can be changed. The only thing that changes the heart of any man or any woman is the extravagant grace of a God who looks at sinners and turns them into sons and daughters. 
There's nothing else. There's no other hope. All my eggs are in that one basket. Jesus is good. All the rest of us are fallen. He's not. Every other human besides Jesus fell hard. Jesus didn't. He's our hope. He's our only hope. So how do we get honest about, about where we are when, when the church should have been there? I remember even as a little kid, there was a, the Surgeon General was a man named C. Everett Coop. C. Everett Coop was, he was a compassionate, odd-looking man to me. I always thought he was odd-looking, but he was a Christian. He gave his life to Jesus, and he had compassion on the, during the AIDS epidemic. I'm not sure if some of you remember this. And the religious right came against him. And it was really confusing. Like, I remember as a kid being like, whoa, like, wait, wait, why are Christians, like, why are, why are they fighting each other here? That's our, he's on our team. People are dying in the streets. Go love them right where they're at. And, and, but that's not what happened. So what I'm letting you know is by, by 1998, by, I'm sorry, by 1988, there was what was called a war conference. 175 activists convened in Virginia to establish the gay agenda. They, they, they came together to get this agenda coming. They had this agenda, which was, number one, to desensitize people to homosexual relations, to same-sex attraction. So there was a, they said, okay, enough of what we've been doing. We're, the the militancy is not going to work with the whole culture at large. We're going to have to have a smarter approach. Number one, let's desensitize. Number two, let's change the popular opinion. And then number three, we will battle our opponents. And the idea was, we will punish the people that oppose us. And this was kind of feeding into which was what the religious right had already showed, which was if you cross us, because you even saw this with televangelists. One televangelist would cross another televangelist and they would crucify. The, there was like this infighting that happened, like this, this cancel culture. When, when Christians shout about, oh, we don't like the cancel culture. Sorry, Christians. The, uh, us, us Christians for generations now have been showing the world what cancel culture looks like. In a lot of ways, I think we've taught people how to cancel. We really need to stop being surprised when other people learn to do better what we started off in the first place. Now, I know that's not everyone. C. Everett Coop was an exception to this rule. There were many other Mother Teresa types that were exceptions to this rule. But, but this war conference came together, and, and during this time, there was the reality where both sides, people that were leaning right, people that were leaning left, both sides were raising insane amounts of money by getting people riled up. By the time you get to the 2000s, by the 90s, I could talk about the federally mandated courses that would, they would go against and say, hey, uh, don't just think of gender as a binary thing. We wanna add, you know, sow some seeds that it's not binary, that there's a lot of different genders. And if, if you think that that sounds normal to you, it's, well, there, there's a reason in the 1990s there was a federally mandated course that the government is saying we will indoctrinate um, people to, to be thinking in these kind of ways. Then at the same time, You've got Christians who are raising all kinds of money to arouse the fear and the anxieties and the anger of people to say, hey, they're coming against the traditional family and, and we're for family values and we're looking out for number, you know, for, we, we, for traditional America and all that. To then the gay community would say, you guys are about family values and they'd say yes. They'd say, yeah, but you guys are getting divorced just as much as any other part of the world. And, and the idea is like, but, but yeah, yeah well, that's true, but, but you know, don't, don't judge us for divorcing. No one's perfect. They're like, yeah, but you say no one's perfect when it's a divorce and remarriage, but then when it comes to homosexuality, you say it's the unforgivable sin, like we're feeling an inconsistency here. What's going on? And so there was this, this money that would get raised on both sides, insane amounts of money that by the time you come to like 2014, Slate Magazine, 
they called it the year of outrage. They said, hey, we're in full-fledged outrage mode because money gets raised not by making peace. Money gets raised by making war. It's not just the World War II anymore where the economy gets boosted by, by having to create new widgets that will go to war. Now the widgets are online and they're recreated and reproduced by algorithms that get people more riled up to share more things, to get online, to go and slander more often, to hate more often. And, and so the, the year of outrage, they had, a, they had a new outrage for every day of the year to remind us of, of this is the world that we now live in. And where it's left us, honestly, a lot of us are just plain tired. We're, we're just exhausted, aren't we? Christians that are like, I don't even want to be called a Christian because when someone hears Christian, they're thinking like mean. And then and, and they're thinking judgmental and condemning. And, and so you've got people like, hey, we're, we're not ex-evangelicals. We're afraid of the word evangelical, which many people not just have abandoned evangelicalism, they many people have also abandoned the evangel, the gospel itself. And then you got people on the other side, there's a new surge of writing in the LGBTQ community that's saying, hey guys, can we just be honest, those of us that are lesbians, those of us that are bisexual, the same thing we accused all those uh, right-leaning you know, traditionalists of in the 1980s, canceling people and shaming people and coming out against people and, and punishing people for disagreeing, we're now doing the exact same thing. We now judge the, when we judge the people we say are judgmental. We've become the very thing that we used to say we needed protection from. We are the monsters that we used to say we're oppressing us. So that's where we are. So what does God say? If you could look at 1 Corinthians, turn over to 1 Corinthians with me. I'm gonna pick up where we left off last week. And I'm gonna try to do the work of exegesis and hermeneutics. Exegesis means what did it mean then and there? Hermeneutics means what does it mean here and now? To exegete something means to, to read out of the text what's in there. It's the opposite of what we don't want to do, which is called eisegesis, where you're trying to read into the text what you wish was there. When the Bible says something like, if you see your brother in need of this world's goods and you've got the goods and you don't help him, how can you say God's love abides in you? To exegete that means you would read that and say, wait a minute, if I've got stuff that someone else needs... I should go help them. To eisegete, it would be to say, ah, well, I think you need to be mindful. Like, mm, what does it really mean? We're not really sure what that means because if you want to keep your possessions, you would like to eisegete, not exegete the passage to get the passage to say what you want it to say. What I want to dare us to do and beg us to do is to exegete the passages so that we will read what God is saying, not what humans have twisted preachers like me to try to say. 1 Corinthians 6.12, if you're still with me, say, keep going. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. But for the Lord. Now, just to, to review last week, the body is made for food. You need to eat all the time. The body's made for food. The body is made for water. You need to drink all the time. If you don't drink, you're going to die. It's logical to think, well, wait a minute. I've got cravings for food. I need to eat. I've got cravings for water. I need to drink. I have cravings for sex. I must have sex. The problem is what Paul says is that's human thinking because while the body is made for food and drink, the body is not made for sexual immorality. Now, what this means to say it's not made for that, what it means is you do not thrive when you move and live in ways outside of how God made you. You don't thrive. You may like the taste 
of monosodium glutamate, MSG, but your body doesn't thrive with MSG because MSG is not good for you. You're like, yeah, but I crave it. Craving and thriving are two different things. Because of the fall, there are a lot of MSGs in this world. Because of the fall, there are a lot of things that we crave and desire that are outside the bounds of what God says are okay. For example, the Bible forbids incest. And this is why even in our culture right now, there's a a big theme, which is, man, let people love whoever they want. To which people say, Mike, do you agree with that? My answer is, yes, I do. Let people love whoever they want. The problem is our culture has taken the word love and exchanged it for the word sex. So if you were to say to me, Mike, shouldn't people just put love whoever they want? I'm like, yes, please do. Go love whoever you want. If by love you mean 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't boast, love doesn't envy, love does not insist on its own way. If that's what you mean by love, 100%. But if what you mean by love is, oh, Mike, me and one of my family members, oh, we, we have feelings for each other, and I know it would be incest, and I know that the Bible forbids incest, what would you say to me? I, am I free to love my family member? My answer would be, yes, you're free to love your family member. No, you're not free to have sex with your family member because while you can love them, patient, kind, good, not insisting on your own way, you cannot have sexual morality with them because the body's not made for that. To which you might say, yeah, but I, man, I, I feel the urge for food and I feel the urge for water and I feel the urge for my family member, just like you might feel the urge for MSG. What I'm telling you is that's not for you. Sexually. You can say, well, so I can have no relationship? No, you can have all sorts of relationship with that person. You cannot have sexual relations with that person. According to scripture, that's what it says. Our culture has landed on a spot where we have basically said that the only boundary marker is consent. I read an article this week about polyamorous relationships. Like one of the things that's on the rise is our culture is saying, hey, just let people love whoever they want. What if there's a couple, what if there's a married couple and they want to have a third person come in? Not just have couples, but let's do throuples, right? And so the idea is, you know, having these wedding ceremonies where someone comes down, because in most, there's only like one place in the whole U.S. where three people can marry each other. In most places, it's illegal, to which it really begs the question, why should it be illegal? Now, I'm, by the way, as we're talking navigation, I'm going to say this, and I know this is going to hurt some Christians' feelings. It is my opinion that the church should not judge those outside the church. We need to judge those inside the church. That's what the Bible says. This whole nonsense about, you know, don't judge anything. We don't judge, don't judge people whether they're going to heaven or hell. You don't know who's going to heaven. You don't know who's going to hell. You don't know who's right with God. We are supposed to have judging going on inside the church. Like when I'm giving you my judgment on the church in the 1980s was unloving and unmerciful. That's a judgment I'm making. I'm not gonna judge those outside. We do need to be discerning with those inside the church. The reason I'm saying that is, Mike, what's your position on three people getting married? Here's my position. I'm not gonna marry a thruple. But if the culture's doing that, I'm just gonna tell you, I'm not gonna go march on this. Our job is to go make disciples of Jesus, to turn people to Jesus, to point people to Jesus. I'm not starting our campaign to fight thruppling, okay? If someone doesn't believe in Jesus and they're in a thruppling relationship, listen, I'm not talking about their thruppling, I'm talking to them about Jesus. That's, what I'm, that's where I'm gonna go with that. You can say, well, Mike, are you in agreement? Listen, because I'm not in agreement doesn't mean the first thing that comes out of my mouth when I'm talking to someone I'm in disagreement with is about that. The first thing in my mind with anybody is I want them falling in love with the goodness and greatness of Jesus. 
But part of the idea on this was, hey, what's up with our culture? This, this line of thought has been, it's such, a, it's such a messed up. There's patriarchy, there's traditionalism that's keeping people. You should be able to love whoever you wanna love. And if you wanna love three people or four people or five people, why is culture telling you you can't? And there's really good questions on that. Of course, if we follow Jesus, our answer would be, you know, it's it, because we believe that the goodness of God has revealed to us, he's given us his revelation. The only reason that I would even tell someone that the only, I'm telling you, the only ground I have to stand on and why I would not, I'm not in favor of polyamorous relationships is because of what scripture says. If someone doesn't believe this, I would talk, I'd be like, you're free to do whatever you wanted. Like, I'm not going to come and I'm not going to come and hate on someone. I'm not going to post evil things about them on, on, on social media, anything like that. What I got to get clear about what God says, what the Bible says is that because of the fall of Adam and Eve and every one of us, our instincts as they currently are, are fallen. You and you and me and me and you and you, all of us have cravings and desires that are different than God's best. And watch me, here it is. Anything that violates what God has said to do will not lead to our thriving. You want proof of this? The Bible says divorce. Jesus says, if you divorce and remarry, except for the case of sexual immorality, you commit adultery. Now you could say, well, well, hey, what, 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 this, by the way, this is one of the gay community's big transgressions that they have with the church, which is why are you guys so opposed to homosexual immorality when you're not opposed to heterosexual immorality? Now, I'm not saying this to cast any shade or put anyone on the defensive. I'm trying to say that there's, we, all of us I think would understand that we already know the worst thing that happens to kids is when mom and dad get divorced. When the Bible says God hates divorce, it's not because he's a mean rule giver. It's because God wants human thriving. When God says don't sleep with your mother, he's saying that because it doesn't lead to human thriving. When God says wait until you're in a covenant to have sex, it's because when you have sex with someone and you're not married to them yet, I'm telling you, it is messing with your body and soul in a way we cannot put into words. But the author, which is the one that has the authority, has told us, I'm your author. I know how you're wired and you're not wired for that. Romans chapter one, this is another passage that, that people often reference. Verse one, verse 18, it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, even his eternal power and divine nature having been clearly seen or understood from what has been made, so the people are without excuse. Well, what is known about God from his creation? Well, Genesis 1, 26 says, in the beginning God created all things, and it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, you don't get this in English, but you would get it in Spanish. In, in Spanish, the word for heaven would be el cielo. El cielo. The word for earth is la tierra. In Spanish and in, in Greek, for example, the the tense or the, the words have a, a, they have a gender to them. So la tierra is feminine, el cielo is masculine. So at the very beginning, the very first, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first scene we see is a masculine and a feminine. We see this masculine and feminine coming together. Just to get all of us understanding, when God made everything in the beginning, heaven and earth were not wildly separated, they were joined. They were joined, they were together. There was, God would walk, it says, that Adam could hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Well, how did he know the sound of the Lord? Because in the beginning, the heavens and the earth, they were, they were united. Heaven is the command center of the universe, but heaven and earth were united. Sin separates everything. 
By the way, if we just fast forward, this is a total different sermon, but if we fast forward to the very end in the book of Revelation, it says, at the very end of it all, let us rejoice and be glad for the marriage of the Lamb. That's Jesus, the Lamb of God. The marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride, his people, the people of God, has made himself ready. All through the prophets in the Old Testament, you would see where God said, I, your maker, am your husband. He would say in another place that I am your bridegroom. He would come and say that I'm gonna care for you as a, as a he doesn't just say he's like a groom. God himself calls himself a groom. All of the creation itself is, it's a divine romance where if there's anything inside of you that's like, oh, I feel like there's this romantic in me. Trust me, some of you have more, some of you have less of this. Every one of us has a romantic streak in us because it's an echo reminder of something that's been lost. And it's why we try to find that something and convert something on this earth into an ultimate when the things on this earth are supposed to be pointing to an ultimate. As an example, I'm a daddy. I wanna be a great daddy, but I'm not a perfect daddy. And my children do well when they allow me to be their father. They do very not well when they turn me into an ultimate. Because good fathers on earth at their best are pointing to the ultimate father. You do well to look for good marriage, but I gotta tell you, if you're waiting for the perfect marriage, you'll be consistently disappointed. And by the way, can I just say, can, have we not yet learned when 50 to 60% of marriages are going to end in divorce, apparently marriage is not everything everyone hoped it was. And then the people that stay married, a good chunk of those cheat on each other anyway. And then the people that don't cheat on each other, a lot of them are not very happy anyway. What will it take for us to understand? Clearly, marriage, romance, even the greatest sex is not gonna ever do for us what our souls need. I, I'm saying this because even, even in, uh, when, I, when I'm reading this, it says what may be known about God is plain to them because you, what you see is heaven and earth, but it's not just heaven and earth. A few verses later, we come to Genesis 1, 26, 27. He says, in the image of God, he created them, and now you've got male and female, Adam and Eve, man and woman. God created us in his image. It says, in the image of God, he created them, male and female. The image of God is not masculine. The image of God is male and female. Guys, this is so important, and the church's failure on this has caused so much stumbling in our culture when it comes to sexuality, which is why if all you have is a, a room full of a bunch of men, you are not gonna get the full reflection of the image of God. If all you had in a room was a bunch of women, you will not get the full reflection of the image of God. It's the, there's, the, 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 there's a femininity, there's a masculinity that when they come together, there is a, a complementarity, there's a, there's a purpose that God had in, in la tierra and el cielo, and, and both of them coming together. And at the very end, God says, when after everything has happened, God's going to join them back together again. The idea is not ultimately in the future that we just go up to heaven. The idea is that heaven's coming down to earth and the two shall become one. That's the story. That's the whole story. The image of God is male and female. And I'm just going to say it. Satan, the enemy of God's people, he hates the image of God. He hates the image of God. It is my theory that, that Satan became Satan. He was Lucifer. He was an angel that, that was in the presence of God. That what caused him to, what caused him to rebel? I've also often wondered that. I think it was the rumors or the reality that out of all of creation, the supernovas and the stars and the animals and, and, the, and the plant life and the vegetation and the, and the glories of the galaxies and the angels themselves, but there was only one part of creation made in God's own image which was us. 
And I think there was like a jealousy that was there, like an envy of, of no matter what any angel could ever say, they'd never be able to say that we are the redeemed of the Lord, made in his very image. But how did he make us? From the beginning, his eternal qualities are actually obvious. Male and female. He said it in Genesis 1. It's male and female. That's the image. And Satan hates the image of God. Which is why if he cannot destroy us, God's people, he will distort the image of God inside of us. He will distort that image in us. So when we come to verse 21, it says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him. And their, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Did you see that? It's, it's images of mortal human what is pornography? That is taking a human body, a, a mortal body, and turning it into, oh, ladies, if only you had the perfect body. Sir, if only you had the perfect whatever. If only we had this. And we've, we've taken something that was meant to be a sign that's pointing, and rather than letting that be the sign that points, we've stopped at the signs and worshiped them. And we've had people say, well, if only I had the best sex life there ever was, I'd be happy. Friends, that is a lie. Even if you get the best sex life. Talk to someone a while back that was getting divorced, terrible marriage, and I asked about, they were asking about their, their sex life and all this, and then in response to that, they're like, oh, sex has never been a problem. It's been super good, but Mike, sex is not enough to make a marriage. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? And yet, even in, I'm telling you, even Christians have blown this because Christians, when you read the Christian literature of the last 50 years as it relates to marriages, you'll, you'll hear especially women being shamed by these Almost all male authors that say, women, you need to make sure you're meeting your husband's needs because if you don't meet his needs, he might get tempted with porn. He might turn somewhere else. He might look somewhere else. I'm not saying I don't agree with 1 Corinthians 7. I believe in meeting each other's needs. By the way, it says meet each other's needs, not just women meet your husband's needs. But I'll tell you this. If your husband has a lust problem, his answer and his salvation, his deliverance is not his wife. His deliverance and salvation, his answer is Jesus. Enough of this garbage when I'm reading these sex books that were written to married couples telling them that, and, and really what it was is if only you had a great enough sex life and all your problems would go away. That is idolatry. There is one thing that can satisfy you and his name is Jesus. And it gives us this, there's the insinuation that if you're unable to have sex regularly, often, or amazingly, then your life is not worth living. Then no wonder when I'm listening to the gay community say, wait a minute, I might be called to have to be celibate to follow Jesus. Well, I'd rather commit suicide. And that's what you're finding is all sorts of suicidal ideation because the idea is I'd rather be dead than to have to live a sexless life. And the idea is, well, where did they get that idea? They got that from the church. They got that outside of the church. And I want to tell you this, whether you can have sex, cannot have sex, whether you've got feelings, don't have feelings, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything you need is going to be given to you. I promise you that. Because I've talked to people having amazing sex and their lives are not amazing. And I've talked to people that have gotten the perfect spouse and their life is still, I still feel like I haven't found what I'm looking for. Because until you do the re-exchange, in the garden we exchange the truth of God and the position of God for something else. And if anything besides God himself is on the throne of your heart, you will not thrive. I like how he says, 
when he goes on to say this in, in Romans 1, um, because of this, God gave men over to shameful lusts. But by the way, part of the punishment is people are like, well, what's, what's the punishment? God will send me to help. Your punishment starts when God's like, all right, I'll give you what you want. Even their women exchange natural sexual relations with unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with their lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men. By the way, this is one of the, one of the uh, a lot of the reading that I'll do in, in progressive circles will often point out the Bible does not forbid same-sex relationships. It forbids exploitive, like exploitation. It, 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 it's against pedophilia. It's against someone with power leveraging that. It's, it's with someone with a power differential going and taking advantage of someone. But right here it says men inflamed with lust for one another. It's, it's mutual. Like our culture right now has basically said the only out of bounds is, is um, lack of consent. But right here it says two people could even be consenting. Like you could consent to sleep with your sister and God still forbids it. You could consent to sleep with someone else's spouse and he forbids it. And it could be two consenting people, men with other men, and he says, that's not where you're gonna thrive. Men committed shameful acts with one another, received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Sam Alberry says, Paul describes both lesbian and male homosexual behavior as unnatural. This is clearly a massive thing for the Bible to say and correspondingly a very th hard thing for people to hear. Some have wondered whether unnatural might refer to what is natural in people themselves. If so, Paul would be talking about heterosexual people engaging in homosexual activity and thereby going against their natural orientation. Paul would therefore not be condemning all homosexual behavior, but only that which goes against the person's own sexual inclinations. But as attractive as it may be for some, and the man that I'm reading from right now, this is a, a homosexual. This is a same-sex attracted Christian. As attractive as this may be for natural feel for a lot of us. Instead, this does not refer to what feels natural to us, but the fixed way of things in creation. The nature that Paul says homosexual behavior contradicts is God's purpose for us revealed in creation and reiterated throughout scripture. This shows us why it is not true for those with same-sex attraction like myself to say, but God made me this way. Paul's point in Romans 1 is that our nature as we experience it is not natural as God intended it. All of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. How many of us? Desires for things that God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God made me. By the way, the question might be like, Mike, do you think some people are born gay? Like, I'll be honest with you, I have literally driven to graduate schools and pulled out the books on this. There is no consensus on this. I'm, I'm saying the science. The science is there's no consensus. The theology on it is this. Whether someone was born gay, inclined to be bisexual, inclined to steal, inclined to slander, regardless of how you were born, you have to be born again. That's what Jesus said. So the, the, all of us, what I, what I need us understanding is that, that this is 100% this is of us. So when we go back over to 1 Corinthians now, when we read what's one of the harder passages for us to handle, 
1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. And I want you to hear me with a lot of faith right now. Jesus washes us. Jesus washes. You were washed. He said, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Listen to this promise. When you get washed and forgiven and sanctified and justified by Jesus, I'm not saying he changes all your urges. I'm saying he changes the throne of your heart to let him be the one that occupies it. And when he does that, I'm telling you, I'm telling you that the longing that all, that, that all of us in this room have this feeling, all of us watching this right now, whenever you're watching this, have this feel, ah, I feel like my, I, I, there's something I'm still not getting. There's something I'm still missing. I, I know, listen, it's going to come one day when heaven and earth get fully joined again. When we see him face to face, something is going to happen. You're going to say, behold, the lamb of God." The desire of the nations, the lover of my soul, the Alpha and the Omega, the greatest of all the bridegrooms, the king of all the kings, the Lord of all the lords, the one that has the, the higher pleasures. The greatest pleasure on earth is but a signpost pointing to the higher pleasures of God. That is not an excuse to say that we don't use and enjoy this life. It's a way of saying, do not forget what the greatest meal, the greatest conversation, the greatest marriage, the greatest relationship, the greatest sex, the greatest child, the greatest father, what it's pointing to. It's pointing to your relationship with your king. This, this phrase right here, men that have sex with men, is, is the cause of a lot of controversy because, and this is just, let me just take the three-minute you know, exegesis moment. Uh, there, there's a lot of, it's, uh, it's, it comes from two root words, like arsen, which is like man, and, and koites, or, or koiten, which would be this idea of, of the bed, arsenokoitai. There's, there's the word malakoi, which means soft, which would get used for like someone that was, like men that would be seen as effeminate. Sometimes it would be translated effeminate. Um, sometimes it would be the passive partner in the exploitive relationship or someone like the, the passive partner as opposed to the active partner. And there's a lot of talk that like if you ever read Matthew Vines or a lot of the progressive positions would say, um, th- we need to reread the scriptures because they do forbid homosexuality, but the ho- there's a type of homosexuality that they forbid, which would be exploitative, the, the kind that is someone going against someone in that kind of a relationship. But, but mutual, monogamous, loving relationships, the Bible does not not um, forbid that, and yet the evidence is Paul, Jesus, uh, the New Testament writers, they knew of monogamous, loving, homosexual relationships that would have been the case in those days, and and he's writing where he comes up with this word right here that you see up on the screen, arsenokoitai, which was a word that a lot of people have said, hey, we don't really know what this means because you never see it used in Greek, and while you don't see it used in Greek, you do see used in Greek the word male and the word bed. And furthermore, there are two basic passages in the Old Testament that were part of God's holiness code in the book of Leviticus that actually use these two words separately. In Leviticus chapter 18, 22, it says, you shall not lie, koiten, with a man, arsenos, as with a woman. And then in Leviticus 20, it says, whoever shall lie with a woman, 
with a man as with a woman. It's the same words, arsenos coitin. So in other words, scholars say, hey, we, we actually know what Paul is doing here. He's inventing a word. He's inventing a word, which is a compound of two different words, putting them together. And he's, if it's not something that was used, it's something that he's clearly borrowing on Leviticus 18 and 20, which he would have known very well, which was forbidding, watch, not same-sex attraction, but same-sex behavior. Mike, is it a sin to feel tempted by someone of my gender? It is not. It's a sin to act on it. Is it a sin for me to be attracted to another married woman in our church? That's not a sin. It's a sin if I act on it. Is it a sin if someone desires to smoke crack? No, it's not a sin to desire that. It's wrong to get drunk. It's wrong to get high. The Bible says drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Many will contest and say, well, Mike, I feel like the church just cherry picks certain sins of the Old Testament. Why do we enforce some sins, but we don't enforce others? The reality is, friends, we really need to stop doing, like, like getting your theology from TikTok. Like when people say, well, I've heard, uh, you know, I've heard people say that, you know, like how, you notice that the same chapter that will talk about tattoos talks about men sleeping with men. How can we enforce the men sleeping with men, but we don't enforce the verse about tattoos? The answer is because the scriptures tell about, there's three kinds of the law. When you hear about God's law in the Old Testament, you've got what's called the civil law, which was related to Israel. Israel was a nation. They, had, they needed civility. There was a civil law. There's no more Israel like that. We're not under a theocracy. The civil law is obsolete. There was a ceremonial law. There was a sacrificial law, like number two, which was done away with by Jesus. For example, when he is the ultimate sacrifice that has made us clean. So the ceremonial law is done away with. But then there's what's called the moral law or the holiness code of God. The moral holiness code still applies, which is why no one's arguing we say, do unto others as, we'd ha- as you want it to be done to you or love the Lord your God with all of your heart or love your neighbor as yourself or remember the poor. These are parts of the holiness code, the moral law of God that God said when the new covenant comes, he's gonna take his law and write it on our hearts. Not the ceremonial law, not the civil law. He's writing his moral law on our hearts. And what's his moral law? And this is really where it comes down. What is something that sin? Sin is when we violate the image and the authority of God. Mike, why is homosexuality forbidden in the Bible? And here's the answer. Because it violates the image of God. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. Why is it wrong to be merciless with people online? Because the image of God is merciful. God is merciful. And when we are ruthless, we violate the image of God. It's a sin. There's some of you that go online and you slander people all the time. I want you to hear me clearly on this. Your soul is in danger. Your soul is in danger. There are some of you that feel like even as Christians, you're like, oh, as a Christian, it's my job to go expose people. You are possibly a slanderer and your soul is in mortal and immortal danger. And you need to stop. We've said that to homosexuals. What I want to say is, can we level the playing field? The Bible says the greedy will not, we just, the greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means there are some of you that are greedy. Your soul is in danger. I am begging you. Why is it wrong to be greedy? Because we have the God who is generous. We have a God that's generous. Why is it wrong to be unloving? Because God is, sin is that which violates the image of God, the story of God the authority of God. And here's the reality. Homosexual, reality. homosexual relationships, they violate the image of God and the authority of God and the story of God. 
And God says, when you go against my image, it will, you will not thrive in that. You will not thrive. There, there's a lot, of, a lot that's been said about the, the psychological morbidity of the, in, the, in the LGBTQ community. And prior to 2010, a lot, of the, a lot of the statements on this were, well, the reason there's such psychological morbidity, meaning anxiety levels, depression levels, suicide levels, it's because culture itself is so hateful. But since 2010, they, they demonstrated there has been a wide amount of very, you know, ubiquitous um, presence, the presence of very pro-gay messaging, and yet the psychological morbidity is still there. See, kids don't get worse off when their parents get divorced just because people shame them. They get worse off because we don't thrive in divorce. And we don't thrive when we go away from the image of God. Mike, can people change their orientation? I think it's rare. What do you think about restorative therapy? I'm not in favor of it. Like a lot of the restorative therapy I've heard people doing, it sounds like torture. I think Christians should be against that. I've, talked to, I've also talked to people in our very church that have said, Mike, I was determined to be celibate. You know, to, I, when I read the scriptures, I realized I'd have to be celibate unless God changes my, my desires. And after a decade, we've got people in our church, I'm not gonna call them out, I'm not gonna bring them up on stage for their own self, but people in our very church have had other desires awakened as they followed Jesus and really had died to, really kind of laid on the cross the possibility of ever getting married. Some of them have kids now. I think it's rare. I do. I think there's people that are, that are going to end up being celibate for the sake of Jesus, just like I think there's some people that are married and they'd rather get divorced and they're staying married because they're being faithful to Jesus. We've got people that are single that would rather be married. Some people married, they'd rather be single. And, and I love it when, when people follow Jesus despite the reality of their lives because what it says to a world that watches them is there is someone who is better and greater than any of the circumstances of my life. <laughs> Sam Albury, when he talks about his identity, he says, it sounds clunky to describe myself as, he doesn't call himself, he, he says, we gotta be careful about our identity. My identity is not homosexual. My identity is someone who experiences same-sex attraction. But describing myself like this, may, it, this is a way for me to recognize that the kind of sexual attractions I experience, they are not fundamental to my identity. They are part of what I feel, but they are not who I am in a fundamental sense. I am far more than my sexuality. Take another kind of appetite. I love meat. A plate without a slab of meat just doesn't feel right to me. But my love for meat does not mean I want someone to think of me that carnivore is my primary category through which to understand me. I am so much more than my inclinations. Mike, what's your point on all this? This is, I, I, please hear me. While I can discover my identity, I cannot define my identity because God already has. Let, let me say it differently. While I can discover truth, and this goes completely against our culture, I cannot define truth because God is truth. Christianity is unique in that truth is not attached with a proposition, it's attached with a person. Jesus says, I am the truth. While I can discover my identity, I don't get to define my identity because there is an author and a finisher of my very existence, and authors, by definition, have the authority. You are who God says that you are. You don't want to be your own author. God is the one that's the author of you. You don't want to be your own father. There's even right now, in this, when I was studying the thruples, there's a movement right now for people to be able to marry themselves. You don't want to marry yourself. You two would never get along. 
Mike, can you end this sermon soon? All right, let's go ahead and... I want us to know how we got here. We're in an age of rage that's polarizing crazy. I want us to know what the Bible says, and here's what the Bible says. The scripture tells us same-sex activity is forbidden. Same-sex attraction is not a sin. The Bible says that there's a hypocrisy associated with pulling one of the sins of 1 Corinthians 6 out, that if you're gonna take out one sin and say, this one's really bad, and you're not throwing slander and greed, and it's, it's very confusing to the onlooking world when we say things like, well, yeah, but that one's unnatural. According to scripture, slander is unnatural. Stop saying homosexuality is unnatural, and you don't say slander is unnatural. Greed is unnatural. I hear people say, no, greed's natural. No, according to the Bible, greed is unnatural mercilessness is unnatural all of these things it's not just homosexuality that's unnatural anything that God has forbidden is unnatural because you do not thrive there and at the end of the day here's the call it's where I started the day Titus 3 it says therefore don't slander anyone be peaceable gentle toward everyone because at one time we too were foolish disobedient deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures we lived in malice and envy being hated and hating one another but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared he saved us <laughs> listen to the, in, in this book is God a, is, is God anti-gay it says every Christian is called to a costly sacrifice and here's the call of Jesus. Please hear me on this. Because this might, be, this might empty out some of the people in our church, and I'm not trying to do that at all. But Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, they have to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I'm going to say it again. If anyone wants to follow him, they, they, they deny themselves, deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Denying yourself does not mean tweaking your behavior here and there. It is saying no to the deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. To take up a cross is to declare that your life as you've known it forfeit. It is laying down your life for the very reason that your life, it turns out, is not yours at all. It belongs to Jesus. He made it. And through his death, he's bought it. Ever since I've been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like, the gospel must be harder for you than it is for me, as though I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel that somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. This is why I think Jesus said in Matthew 7, many are going to say to me on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. They're going to say, no, no, I went to church. He's going to say, no, no, you posted on social media all the time. You were a slanderer online. Depart from me, you slanderer. You never knew me. Or someone that was taking advantage of their girlfriend or their boyfriend, and he's going to say, depart from me. Or someone that, that would not forgive their enemies. He's going to say, no, you, you violated my image. What, could, what was known about me was clear from creation. Yeah, yeah, but you don't know how hard it would have been. Don't you understand how, how much I'd have to, what, deny do you understand that Jesus says the only way to heaven is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him? And we live in an age that has said, don't deny yourself, express yourself. And Jesus says, you are living in an anti-Christ 
world that has told you, express yourself when I'm calling you to deny yourself. And if you will, you will find yourself in me. Guys, it's just going to take that. The gospel demands everything of all of us. No wonder so many homosexuals have avoided the church because they've watched buildings full of people that did not deny themselves, asking them to deny themselves. And what I want to say to you, church, is as a church, I would rather be a part of a faith family where there's only a handful of us that have decided that Jesus is worthy of our all, no matter what the cost. I end it like this. I was reading about a woman that was in a, she was a serial fornicator. Single mom, husband left her, hard life, just kept going wrong guy after wrong guy after wrong guy after wrong guy. She was always with another guy. She couldn't break the cycle. And then one day, someone hadn't seen her for a while. They, they came back and they, and they saw this woman and, and she was single with her kids and, and God was just blessing her. And, you know, not easy, but God, there was a blessing that was there. And, and someone's like, what happened to you? She said, the Bible happened to me. They said, what do you mean? She said, you know, there's this verse in Colossians 3 where it says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. They said, that's it? She said, yeah, Colossians 3 happened to me. They're like, I don't get it. They said, no, no, all my life I kept thinking a man would be my life. If I could get the right man, I'd be alive. Then I'd have my life. Then I'd have, and there's a lot of us, it's like marriage is our life, or sex is our life, or career is our life, or money is our life. No wonder we're greedy and fornicating and sleeping around and whatever. But when Christ, she said, when Christ became my life, I was like, you know what? I'd rather be single in the blessing of the Lord. And sure enough, Jesus has not disappointed. He is now my life. If you're here and you are wrestling with these issues, you are so incredibly welcome. And if you radically disagree with me, you're still welcome. And I'm very open to dialogue. If you're here and you've been hurt by religious people, I repent. On behalf of the church, I repent. I ask you to forgive us. Our sins have been many and wicked and evil. Our double standard has been outrageous. Our cherry picking has been an abomination. And with all of my heart, I'm sorry. But for everyone that's here, I need you to understand Jesus is worthy. He goes to a cross where he sheds his blood. He ends his ministry the way he began his miraculous ministry at a wedding, being the bridegroom. Because at a wedding, he goes and they ran out of wine and his mother said, do whatever he says and they're out of wine and you need the wine for the wedding and they didn't know what would happen. But the embarrassment is on the bridegroom because it's always the job of a bridegroom in a Jewish wedding to provide the wine and the bridegroom had really dropped the ball. Jesus goes and turns water into wine. He goes, he says, bring the purification jars. He takes these jars of purification. It was where they do the purification rites for people to get purified. He brings the purification jars and he gets his hands on them and somehow they become wine. And I don't know how to explain this, but the wine of relationship and sexuality and romance and destiny and purpose, the wine that we long for, it's not coming for more wine. The wine always runs out. Ironically, it goes through purification. When Jesus comes and puts his bridegroom hands on you, he turns your water mundane, odorless, tasteless existence and turns it into something intoxicating. 
ultimately one day he would go up on a cross where he would shed his blood and say, this is my blood. This is the wine. And if you drink of this, you will never thirst again and you'll come alive. Thank you.